We pray like we're talking to Santa Claus, just asking for things that we want. But the way that Paul prays we looked at two weeks ago is very different. He doesn't always ask God to remove pain and remove struggle and just give us blessing and give us gifts. He says, give us strength to endure, right? Give us, give us the dignity and honor to walk through trial and suffering and to do it well, right? He prays very differently. He prays for people he never knew. He prays, rejoices over people that, that he just hears are growing in the faith. There's a Christ-centered prayer to him. And then we also see a Christ-centered teaching, right? A Christ-centered truth that pervades and invades and, and takes over the entire message that the, the church should be preaching. A Christ-centered truth where every sermon needs to connect you to Jesus. Not just something about Jesus, but the fact that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is God. So we've got Christ-centered prayer, we've got Christ-centered truth. And now today, a Christ-centered church, as we'll look at, will have a Christ-centered leadership. A Christ-centered leadership, meaning that the leadership of the church, the way that the church is led, and the type of leaders that uh, lead this church will be entirely different than what the world can offer. The leadership of the church, if it's a Christ-centered leadership, will be unlike what the world can offer. Now, a lot of us, if we're honest, have uh, uh, we have to undo so much ex uh, church experience that we've had in the past because we've seen church leaders fight and uh, we've seen churches uh, have leaders that, uh, that can't get along, and so they split. We've seen ch uh, church leaders be proud. We've seen church leaders be corrupt. We see church leaders squabbling over, uh, over how, to, how to run the church and to, uh, to get to the point where they're heated and yelling at each other, and the love in Christ is fractured all over how they want to run programs. We see this thing happen all the time. Many of us have seen church leaders that abuse their power, We've seen church leaders that demean their subordinates, demean the, the, uh, just the, the non-leaders of the church. Uh, we've seen church leaders who compete for prominence against other leaders, trying to see who, who is the, the, the bigger power. Some churches are led by people who are jealous, some who are power-hungry, some who are arrogant, some who are greedy, some who are bossy, some who are judgmental, some who are insensitive, and some who are just downright hateful. What is it like to have leaders of a church who have their entire interest centered on what Jesus wants with no self-interest at all? Like the only thing they want for this church is what Jesus wants for this church. And they're not in it for themselves. What is it like to have leaders like that? How would they lead differently? How do, you, how do you know if your church's leadership is Christ-centered or is self-centered? Typically, uh, we could look at passages like 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, and we could look at the, the uh, character uh, requirements of church leaders, of elders and overseers and things. We could, we could look at that, and that, that's extremely helpful. That's probably the best place to look. But today, what we're looking at is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, till chapter 2, verses 5, uh, verse 5. Uh, where Paul is just trying to let the Colossians know who he is. He's just saying like, hey, I'm Paul. We've never met. And uh, this, is, this is kind of who I am and what I've gone through and what I'm about. That's what he's going to say. He's going he's to just kind of give a little bit of self-disclosure on this. And he's letting them see that he himself is a Christ-centered apostle, a Christ-centered leader. And uh, if they see that, then that will be what establishes his credibility to then uh, rebuke and warn and teach and exhort the church, 
right? He, he wants to say, like, look, this is what I'm about. I'm about Jesus. Everything about me is, is aimed at Jesus. He is the, he's the source. He's the center. He's the purpose. He's the goal of everything I do. And when the Colossians see that, they'll say, like, oh, yeah, us too. And then he can rebuke them, and, or he can uh, warn them, or he can teach them, or he can instruct them, and he can exhort them. And they'll say, yeah, because you want the same thing we want. Your vision of church is the same as ours. It's got to be Jesus' church. Well, we're in Colossians 1. Our main passage will start in verse 24. But for now, let's back it up to verse 21 to gain a little bit of momentum before we jump full speed into the main passage. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, And you, Colossians, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And so all of that so far is to say that, like, you guys heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and you, you keep at it, and you will see heaven. And at the end of it, uh, end of verse 23, he says, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, saying, I am now a servant of the gospel, the gospel that you heard. I'm not a servant of a different gospel. I'm not a servant of a different teaching. I'm not a a servant of a different uh, authority, a different scripture. I'm a servant of that gospel, which you heard. And that's, that's what I'm about. So he's saying, I'm about the gospel. I'm about Jesus. He is the center source, the purpose, the goal. That's, that's where I come from. That's where I'm going. And that's everything I'm going to aim you at. So he lays that down. And, uh, and he, he, he draws attention to himself to, to let you know that's what he's about. And he's going to do the, the, uh, that for the rest of our main passage now. Okay? He's going uh, to take verses 24 all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. And, uh, and he's going to say that, look, this is, this is where I was, and this is what I endured, and this is what I experienced. All for Christ all for you. So note takers, uh, we're going to observe the way that Paul describes his ministry. And what we'll do is we'll infer 10 ways uh, to be Christ-centered leaders. If you just look at Paul's example, you'll find uh, lots of different things that we could talk about. We are simply today going to, uh, to isolate and discuss 10 ways to be a Christ-centered leader like Paul was, right? These won't be exhaustive. There are other places that you could, you could find uh, uh, instructions on how to be a Christ-centered leader, but we get a really good amount of information here. And, uh, you know, like, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, like, kind of focus on, I guess, the, the relevance and application. We won't get into the nerd stuff, because, like, the thing I want to talk about is the fact that this passage is a double chiasm. For you Bible nerds, that's your homework, Right? I challenge you to identify the two chiasms in chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5, and then we can come and discuss it, and then treasures in heaven for you. Right? But there's double chiasm. No one cares about that stuff. We're, we're just going to go linearly through the passage. Let me read the whole passage first, and then we're going to go into the, the, the 10 different principles that we'll make, and we'll read it in parts to see where those t- principles come from. Right? Chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen, my, uh, seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. All right, that was our passage. Right, it's a lot, and it's uh, it's it's difficult to understand because Paul has this uh, his this tendency to write giant run-on sentences that uh, that our translators do our best to break up into more digestible clauses. But from this description uh, uh, that Paul gives of himself and his ministry, let's draw ten principles for church leaders today: how we can be Christ-centered leaders. And uh, uh, well. A couple things that I should just throw at you first, okay? The first thing is, the fact that this is a sermon about Christ-centered leadership does not excuse you from it if you're not a leader. And the reason why I say that is because the leader is to serve as an example for what the rest of the church is supposed to be. So whatever the leader's supposed to be, guess what? You're supposed to be. After all, you do want to lead people to Christ, right? Haha, makes you a leader, Right? So what, when we're talking about Christ-centered leadership, this has to be true not just of the church's leadership, but of the whole church, of every Christian, but certainly of the leadership, right? Second thing I want to say is uh, this puts me in an incredibly awkward position. You know how like uh, every Sunday, maybe 10 or 11 of you come up to me and say like, hey, Rand, I feel like you were targeting me with that sermon. Like you just spoke and you knew exactly what happened to me this week, it seems like, and you just like talked at it and, and you were convicting me and like, I, I, you know, I felt so put on the spot. And I know you didn't know anything, but it was just so coincidental. And I'm like, nah, that's not, the, that's not coincidental. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. So repent, right? But um, that's, that's typically what happens. 10 or 11 people will come up, you know, a large number of people just because, uh, surprise, the Bible is relevant. But today, uh, it's payback time, I suppose, because this is about Christ-centered leadership. And I have to stand up here and I have to tell you like what you should expect of, of your leader Namely, like, you know, the, the group of people that I belong to, I'm, I'm supposed to be leading this church. This is, uh, man, this is a, you know, like a thing that, a list of things that I have to measure up to. And uh, <laughs> my wife is in this room. My son is in this room. You know, <laughs> the, uh, people who live in my house are in this room. They know where I stand in relation to these 10 things. And I beg them for mercy and grace, for charity and all that kind of stuff. Nonetheless, I must, uh, I must preach the word of God fearlessly because that's what he said, regardless of, of how it makes me feel, right? So let's start with principle number one. And oh, for you note takers, I'm sorry, all of them will be full sentences that start with a Christ-centered leader, dot, 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 and then we'll finish that sentence with each principle, right? So principle number one, a Christ-centered leader rejoices in suffering for the church, a Christ-centered leader rejoices in suffering for the church. And that you see in verse 24. Look at what Paul says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. 
Right? So he, you'll probably hear me say this a lot when I speak of church leadership um, and how to, to evaluate the quality of leaders. Um, one of the big things that I'm always looking for, see if they suffer well. When you look at a church leadership, see if they suffer well. That's going to take time because, you know, when you, if you just visit for one Sunday, you're really not going to get a good view of that. You know, they might be in a good season. So you're just going to have to inspect over time. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some discernment. But see how they, they handle unexpected suffering, like let's say money trouble. You know, they lose their job or something like that. Uh, see how they, they uh, handle unjust suffering. Like, uh, you know, someone just comes up and starts insulting them or, you know, misunderstands them, doesn't like what they said, things like that. Certainly see how they suffer for Jesus, right? When, when there's a church leader doing his work, he's, 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 uh, he's serving the Lord in the church, and that's going to come under scrutiny. Every church leader is always under scrutiny. Is the church leader afraid to do the right thing because it might upset people? And so he'll just kind of go with the popular opinion, right? They don't want to suffer for obeying Christ. They'd rather avoid the suffering by avoiding obedience, are they, is the church leader um, averse to admit when they were wrong or when they behaved poorly? Like, is it just really, uh, like, it's super difficult to get them to apologize or to say that I messed up, ask for help, you know, to, to say I'm embarrassed, right? Uh, they don't want to suffer humiliation for Christ. Do you see that? Is the church leader reluctant to obey Jesus when it costs Right, because it's expensive to be a Christian. Like paying for things instead of pirating or stealing or you know or or, or, or sneaking stuff in, and it, you know it's expensive to be a Christian. It just costs more because you have to be honest with your money. Meaning, you can't just cheat to to save a buck or to take a buck. Is the church leader uh, unwilling to serve Jesus when it's uncomfortable? Right, just uh, well, are they unwilling to wake up, be on time? to meet new people, to help with the, you know, the, the actual labor, the physical labor and stuff? Are they just unwilling to, to be uncomfortable for Jesus? Look for these things, right? Because the Apostle Paul, if you, if you understand who he is, and if, you, if you've kind of been acquainted with him, he was a man who suffered immensely for being a Christian, and, uh, and he, didn't, he didn't suffer and just be like, oh, whatever, this is my lot in life. He suffered, and then he rejoiced in it. I mean, that's a huge tell, isn't it? But he didn't just suffer and, wow, you know, uh, 10 points for you because you got through it. He suffered and he rejoiced in it. Where does that come from, right? It wasn't just willingness for him. It was joy. He was thrilled to suffer if it meant that the church would be blessed. Say, so if I'm going to suffer and the church will be blessed, awesome. I rejoice. This is a verse uh, that's a direct illustration of the attitude that Jesus was, was talking about in Matthew 5.11, right? He says, you're blessed when people insult you, persecute you, uh, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, right? Because you belong to Christ, you get, uh, you get into trouble. Blessed are you. You should rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward. Paul's suffering uh, wasn't just about like waking up on time and paying for stuff and apologizing when he does something wrong. It was way more than that. When Paul suffered, he was getting flogged uh, for, for preaching the gospel. He was getting shipwrecked because he was going on mission trips. He was hated. He was chased out of cities. He was assaulted. And he wrote this letter from a prison cell because it was illegal to be a Christian. He didn't commit any crime just the, other than the fact that he loved Jesus. 
All of that went on. He didn't deserve any of it. He was not a criminal. And yet, he, here he is suffering, and he's just, I rejoice. How awesome is that? Now people know how, like, all in I am for Jesus, and they're encouraged, and they're going all in for Jesus. I rejoice. My suffering has, uh, has strengthened the church. I rejoice. Now, Paul knew that Christ suffered for the church. He suffered affliction for the church. Christ suffered to the point of being crucified and dying for the church. Has Paul gotten to that point yet? Nope. Right? So he's like, I'm still filling up on all the, the afflictions that Christ had. All of Christ's afflictions, he went all the way to death, to the point of death. I'm not there yet, so I'm still filling up on all that, that, that affliction of Christ that, that I haven't received yet. You know, if, uh, if, he would, if he would suffer to the point of death, I'm ready to suffer to the point of death. Fill me up. Bring it. He was not afraid of struggle. He was not afraid of hardship and difficulty. He, he honestly considered it pure joy when he faced trials of various kinds. It's not that Jesus was lacking any afflictions. If you read the verses, like, you know, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's not that Jesus lacked afflictions. Paul is saying, I lack all the afflictions that Jesus had. In all the all the the pain and suffering all the way to the point of death. I've only gone so far. I'm not dead yet. Fill me up. Typically then, I look for whether or not a church leader is is not just willing to suffer for Christ, but if he rejoices in it. If there's something that just motivates him and says, Yeah, that that that's hard and it's unpleasant, I'm down. Let's do it. Right? Like if it, if it glorifies the Lord and if it encourages and strengthens the faith of the, of the church, I'm all in. How do you know if, uh, if a leader rejoices in his suffering? Well, the easy sign is rejoicing is the opposite of complaining. Isn't it? You can't do both. If a person complains about his suffering, he's not rejoicing in it. That doesn't mean he has to pretend that it's, it's good, you know? Like, if you, uh, are, you, you're driving, you get a flat tire, and your car veers off the road and then hits a, a tree, and then it's, like, totaled, you get out, and you're like, oh, awesome. Like, don't do that. Don't pretend that something that isn't good is good, right? Don't necessarily just uh, put on a face about it. But there's a difference uh, between uh, you, can, you can suffer, and you can say, I am suffering, and you can rejoice, Right? If you start covering up saying, yeah, I'm not suffering, this is easy, or it's good, I like it, then, then, then that's, that's a fake kind of performance. You know? uh, what you want to see is whether or not this person sees the value and cares about the value of his suffering, of what it's doing and how it's blessing people. You know, whether, or not, uh, whether or not he cares more about the value in the suffering rather than caring about how unhappy it makes him feel. Which one does he highlight when he speaks about his suffering? The value and the way that it gives strength to people and the way that it, it builds up the church or the way it makes him uncomfortable and miserable and it's so inconvenient and it costs him so much and he's so tired. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he must rejoice in suffering like Jesus suffered. He must rejoice in suffering for the church. Number two. By the way, the first two will take the most time in case you're like panicking now at the length of that one. Number two. Uh, a Christ-centered leader makes the word fully known. Makes the word fully known, verses 25 and 26. 
This is what it says. Uh, talking about the gospel, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So he's, uh, he's trying to, um, to let you know he's a minister of the gospel and he's a minister of the church because to him they're, they're intertwined. Uh, and uh, and he, he needs to go and, and make the word fully known. That's what he says. That's, that's his one job description here. He's a minister, and his job is to make the word fully known. That's a principle. right? Uh, he's, he, uh, in Acts 20, verse 27, um, he, he says, You know I preach the whole counsel of God. That's what I've been doing. I'm trying to make the, the word of God fully known. Now, that, uh, what does that mean, to make the word fully known? Well, first think of the quantity that he has to teach. If you want to make the word fully known, you have to teach the full word, all of it, right? You, you can't just teach one paragraph of a book. You can't just teach the book of Romans or your favorite, uh, your favorite uh, New Testament book and say that you've made the word fully known. You, you, you're, you're far from it. Uh, you can't just teach the New Testament and think that you've made the word fully known. You can't teach every single book except the very, very last one in the Bible and think that you've made the word fully known. There are still parts that your church has not been instructed in. Make the word fully known. The leader has to, has to teach all of it, not just his favorite parts, or else he's, he's failing his duty of, uh, before Christ. Right? You've got, you, uh, you got to see the narrative of the Old Testament. You've got to teach it. You have to see the, the wisdom literature and the Psalms and the Proverbs and uh, in, uh, Ecclesiastes and Lamentations. You've got, to, you've got to see these and you've got to teach it. You've got to see the purpose of the Old Testament laws, what they were trying to communicate and stuff. You've got to teach it. You gotta show how they point to Jesus, what the law was and how it functioned, how it didn't merit you salvation. It wasn't a, a, a 10 step process to become holy. You have to teach the, 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 the role of the law in the life of the believer. The leader has to make the word fully known, which means he has to teach all of it. And think of the quality of his teaching. To say he wants that you make the word full, fully known means that the church really fully gets it. That they really fully understand it. You're making the word fully known. Not just kind of known. I kind of get it. I, you know, I get the, the, the big picture, but I, I fully understand it. That's the goal. And uh, good luck with that. You're, you're really never going to run out of what you can mine and what you can present before the people of God to, to keep encouraging them and reminding them and, 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 and exhorting them to Jesus. But the leader has to reveal the, the word of God in such a way that people fully understand it. And he has to do that with more than just preaching or teaching. He has to show it in, in, in every way that he can convey it to make it fully known. He has to live it out, right? If, if, if a person knows a lot of Bible, but lives a worldly life, you're not bringing understanding to scripture. You, you breed doubt in it, right? When you see someone who knows a whole lot of theology and then lives a worldly life, lives, lives in, uh, in sinful patterns and stuff, isn't that what makes you point to the church and say, look at the hypocrisy? I don't believe it. It shouldn't be believed. Right? So it can't just be in the words that they, that, that they say. It's got to be in the life that they live. The leader has to teach not just with sermons and Bible studies. His, his best teaching tool is his life. Which is why in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, uh, it, sure, in 1 Timothy 3, it says that uh, the, the leader has to be able to teach, but then everything else it lists is a bunch of character requirements, right? He's not quarrelsome, and you know, he's, he's not given to drunkenness, and he's, you know, like you just see all these things that make him above reproach in character. 
So how do you know? How do you know if, uh, if a leader is making the word fully known? Since, you know, you visit a church, he can't do that all in one session, right? Good luck if he's going to preach the entire Bible at you in one Sunday. It's not going to happen. So how do you know he's making the word fully known? Well, it's, it, you, you can't see that in one shot, in one visit, but I'd say that you can look at how he studies the word and you can find out the pattern of it, right? It takes years of reading and learning and meditating and you will never run out. You'll never run out. So if he ever feels like he finished studying the Bible, then you know that he's now at his cap of how he can bless people. If a leader seems content with what he knows and, and he isn't in pursuit of further understanding, further growth, further depth of insight, he doesn't understand the verses that say, keep growing and, and keep gaining depth of insight. He thinks he's done. I find confidence in what a leader will teach when I watch how a leader learns. That's, that's honestly the, uh, the thing that I look at. Chapter 3 of this letter, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? If the word of Christ is supposed to dwell in you richly, that means you don't stop learning it. You don't stop like thinking about it and, and delving into it. You let it dwell richly. Meaning you keep going back at that and you, you keep filling up on it. If someone wants to keep learning, he'll keep teaching. Even just like by consequence, just the way he lives and the way he talks and stuff, it'll come out. But if he doesn't have a passion for learning the word, he will eventually be teaching the word out of his pride and he'll be teaching the word without real passion. It's got to be like something that he is invested in and is in love with. The word of Christ is dwelling richly in him. Uh, here at our church, the way that we do it. We're never going to install a leader who doesn't share meaningfully about what he's learning from the word. That's something that, that we obviously have to key in on. How does he speak about the word and how does he wrestle with it? When, when, we're, when we talk about leaders, we, we discuss that issue, right? Is this person like wrestling with the word of God? Is this, is this something that they'll share about vulnerably, honestly, sincerely, and completely with their discipleship group? Is this something where like the, the word of God is something that comes out of their conversation? Where like they say, this is a hard part of the sermon. I, I had trouble understanding it. Or I, I have a hard part repenting in this area and following it. But that's what we look for. Someone who is grappling with the word of God. We'll never install a leader who's, uh, who, who's not interested in the word. If he's playing on a cell phone during worship service, during sermon, and during songs and stuff, he's not interested. That's not a leader. He, has no, he did not have passion. For, for the word. He doesn't have passion for the Lord. Maybe he likes his role at church, but he's just not thrilled with, with what Christ is doing. Uh, I, I don't think we'd ever install a leader who's more interested in debating what he knows rather than learning what he doesn't. Right? That's a, that's a big key. When you see someone who just wants to get into that theological discussion in order to flex certain religion muscles or whatever, that's, a, that's a, a dangerous sign. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he is to seek always to fully know the word and fully live the word so that he can make the word fully known. Number three, a Christ-centered leader points you to the glory in Jesus, not the glory in worldly success. A Christ-centered leader points you to the glory in Jesus, not the glory and worldly success. That's verse 27. 
This is what he says. To them, to believers, to the saints, uh, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? What did, what did God make known to believers, as, as Paul says here? Well, he, God made known how great among the Gentiles, how great among the non-Jews, how, how great among really just anyone. It's like the faith wasn't just for Jewish people, it was for Gentiles too. So how, how great uh, for everyone are the riches of, of the glory of what? The glory of Christ in you. That's where glory is. That's what he says. The, the, the glory of Christ in you. And then he just like, he caps it off and he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's revealing to you the glory of Christ, who is the hope of glory. In the church, true riches aren't found in money, sex, and power, which is what the world keeps telling you to go after, and and the world keeps telling you will satisfy you and make you feel like you're on top and you're successful. True riches are found in Christ living in his people. That means Christ being expressed in the way that people live that they're living less like themselves and more like him, right? It means a successful church. A successful church does not have to be a mega church. A successful church doesn't have to have over a thousand people in its congregation. A successful church is not measured by the number of congregants in its worship service. It's not measured by how much land it owns or how big the buildings are or how many resources it has. None of that is what makes the church successful. And if you start comparing megachurches with these tiny little startup churches and thinking the megachurch is more successful, you are measuring by a worldly standard that unbelievers would use, which God would think is, is, is foolishness. The church that's full of glory, the church that's successful in God's sight, is the one where its people are living joyfully and obediently to Jesus whom they love. Christ is in them. And you can see it. That is the glory of the church. It's not the buildings. It's not the, it's not the, the fancy music or the, the, the snacks outside. Christ is in them. You can see it. That glory isn't a, a, a temporal thing that, that shoots you right into the future. When you, when you see Christ in a congregation, when you see that Jesus is just being lived out, you know they're bound for even greater glory, the full glory of Jesus for eternity. That's how you know salvation is there because the Savior is there. How do you know if a church leader points you to the glory in Jesus rather than glory in worldly success? Well, look at what thrills him about the people he loves right? What thrills him? What makes him boast about people when they get new jobs, when they get a raise, when they uh, find a boyfriend or a girlfriend? What makes them talk about someone and, like, and, and talk them up? What do they say about church people? Do they, do they speak about how good they are at sports and, at, and music and how attractive they are? Is that the, is that the thing that, that catches their attention? Or does the leader celebrate how someone is repenting of their sin, wrestling with, uh, with, with a, a part of the, the word? trusting in Jesus? Does that come out in their conversation? Do they care about that kind of stuff? Do they talk about how incredible it is to see someone who was lost in depression or lost in addiction or lost in false teaching and yet is recovering? Does the leader rejoice in that? Does the leader celebrate that? Which would thrill him more if the church grew by 10 people that came from a different church and just jumped in and now the church is big? Would that 
Would that thrill him more and he just wants more of that kind of stuff to happen or just to find out that one person that's already been in their congregation has come to saving faith and wants to be baptized? Which would thrill him more? If a leader is to be Christ-centered, then riches and glory aren't found in the world and they're not measured by worldly standards. It's only Jesus who is the hope of glory. Number four, a Christ-centered leader proclaims Christ with both warning and with teaching. The Christ-centered leader proclaims Christ with both warning and with teaching. Verse 28, Paul says, Him, meaning Jesus, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you notice here, the goal is to present everyone mature in Christ meaning that they're living joyfully and obediently, fully knowing the word, okay? That has, that has to happen in how Jesus is proclaimed. And it has to be done with both warning and with teaching. And I, I, you should just know, warning and teaching are the two unpleasant parts of preaching that, that most preachers would try to avoid. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, most preachers are really good at the illustrations or the jokes or the stories, the applications, like, that's, that's the fun part of the sermon. You know, everyone's really touched by the story. Everyone laughs at the joke, right? Or everyone walks away saying, like, you're right, I have to do that for the application. Nobody cares about the double chiasm in this passage. Nobody cares, right? So uh, you, you, you think about, like, the warning part. Well, if you're the warning part, then you're like those preachers. If you're really good at the warning part, you're just yelling at the congregation, guilting them for their sin and failure. They walk away feeling all beat up. And that's, that's what breeds a certain reputation for the church that, that uh, were judgmental. Or you get the other preachers, uh, admittedly like me, that prefer the teaching part, that want to tell you about double chiasms. I'll, I'll say something ridiculous like that. And, and, you know, like I say it, now I'm super excited. There's double chiasm. Find out what the point is. You know, and everyone's like, why? Who cares? Nobody, it's boring, it's irrelevant. Which is what breeds an, a reputation for the church that is boring and irrelevant. I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, when we teach the Bible, when anyone teaches the Bible, whether it's a preacher or a Bible study leader or in, in any context, even in just one-on-one -on -one conversations, when someone teaches the Bible, it has to be with, uh, with all the parts. You've got to proclaim Christ with, sure, the application stuff. Of course, the application stuff. You know, all the word of God is meant so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? But, um, but the point uh, that we're making has to be accomplished by proclaiming Christ with warning and with teaching, not just application. Don't just come and give moral lessons. You have to warn against sin, and you have to show how it the, the principles come from Jesus. You have to show that. And if you miss that, then, then uh, they have a faulty understanding. They think morals is, uh, are what save you instead of Jesus. Or they, uh, they just think if they avoid doing bad things, then they're good. You have to warn, you have to teach, you have to do it with all wisdom. Do it with wisdom, meaning like exercise some tact, some respect, be clear and effective and loving in how you communicate. I got this principle uh, that I developed when I was in uh, youth group. I said, preach to the dumbest kid. 
it's not a nice way to say it, but it helped me remember. Preach to the dumbest kid. Like someone in that, that youth room is, uh, is not in the mood to be at church. You know, like they don't like church. They don't know anyone. Their mom grabbed them, pulled them by the hair, threw them in the car, drove them to church and said, go and be Christian. And they, you know, they're stuffed into the youth room and there they are. And I'm preaching at them. What am I going to do? Talk about double chiasm? Come on now, right? You have to, like, you got to preach to the dumbest kid is the way that I thought. Like, how am I going to reach this guy? How do, how do I let him know that this matters and relates and is beneficial for you? That's hard. It's hard. You, you, got, you got to do the teaching and you got to do the warning and then you got to show, like, this is for you. You know, you got to aim it at, uh, at your audience. The goal isn't to give a spectacular lesson for everyone to think you're articulate and, and organized and intelligent and stuff. That's not the point. It's, the point is that the listener repents and believes. Ends up getting a step closer to being like Jesus. Becomes more mature in Christ. That means you have to warn and teach and it evokes the response of spiritual growth or the sanctification. Right? That's what happens when you proclaim with warning and with teaching. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he must warn of sin, and he must teach to dispel doubt, and he must do it wisely so that people become mature in Christ. Number five, a Christ-centered leader uses his human strength to wield God's power. A Christ-centered leader uses his human strength to wield God's power. Verse 29, he said, uh, Paul says, For this I toil. Meaning trying to make people mature in Christ, that's what I toil for. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? You have to you see those verbs there. He's like, I toil, struggling with his energy that he works in me. It's a weird tension there. You know, Paul toils with his human strength on his human side, and then God works in him. On the spirit side. So who's doing the work? Paul or God? Yes. As servants of God, as the body of Christ, we are his hands and feet. That's the the metaphor we like to use, right? We're his hands and feet. When God wants to work, his hands and feet will move and do the work. Meaning the people of God will go and do the work. So does God want to provide for someone who's in need? Great. Then someone in the church will go and give out of their generosity to provide for someone. Who did the work? The church member or God? Yes. Does God want to comfort someone? Well, then one of the church members will go and speak in a loving conversation with the person that's hurting. Who did the work? The one that went and talked to the person or God? Yes. How can you tell if a leader is using his human strength and yet wielding God's power? That's important because they're always using the human strength to some degree. But how do you know they're wielding God's power? Well, how how do you know that they're doing both? Wielding their strength, uh, using their strength to wield God's power. Well, uh, best best way that I I try to figure it out, uh, the leader does everything he can, everything he can, and then he is at complete rest and complete peace with whatever the result. See, here's the thing. Uh, if you trust in your own work, in your own strength, that it all depends on you, you, you don't think about God's power working in you. You just think, I got to do this. And if it fails, I failed. And so you sit there working as hard as you can, and then you measure whether or not you're any good at it by the success or by the failure. 
Or you got the, the opposite end, you know. Okay, there, there's some people who are like workaholic to, you know, to be uh, so controlling over, the, uh, over the, the way that they serve the church and stuff. And then there are the other people who are just like, you know, oh, that's all right, I'll let the Spirit lead. I'll just let go and let God, right? You have the, those people that, that they don't prepare. They don't, uh, they don't put in the work. Uh, they just kind of show up to church and they're like, yeah, 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 God will do the thing. You know, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and, and help out a little bit here and there, but uh, God will do the thing. And that's the, the, you know, that, that's like the, uh, the moment where you, these are the two extremes. That's, that's the moment where you can discern. Are these people using th- their, their human strength to toil in order to wield God's power? Right? First, you've got to see the, them using their, their human strength. Then you've got to see whether or not they trust that God is working in them. Right? Not to think that they are the basis by which something succeeds or fails. The extent, like, hang on to this one, okay? This is kind of the, the thing that, uh, that I repeat to myself a lot. But the extent to which you're willing to work is the degree to which you invite God to work. How much you're willing to work is how much you're inviting God to work. That's, that's how I see it. He uses your work to accomplish his, right? I, I really don't think that you can ever expect God to work harder than you. He might, but you shouldn't just expect that. How hard are you willing to work? That's how hard you're asking him to work through you. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he must toil, struggling to powerfully work God's energy. Number six, a Christ-centered leader cares about the kingdom, not just the tribe. Chapter two, verse one, right? The the Christ-centered leader cares about the kingdom, not just the tribe. I'm being decorative with the language there. But look at chapter two, verse one. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Colossians, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Right, you see that? We, we already know Paul toils and struggles and suffers for the church. But which church? Well, he's saying, I, I, I toil and I struggle and I suffer for you in Colossae. I toil and I struggle and I suffer for those in Laodicea. I struggle and, and toil and I suffer for all those churches that I haven't yet seen face to face. He's not interested in just what's going on at his own church. He's interested in what's going on in Jesus' church. Among Jesus' people, his love is Christ-centered, not self-centered. Right? It kind of relates back to our, our first sermon. Like, do you pray for people that Christ knows, but you don't? Do your prayers center around the things of Christ, not just you? Not, not just the things that are close to you, because then you're in the center of all your prayers. It's, it, honestly, it's hard enough to get church members to even care about their own missionary. You know, we send a missionary, let's say, to Indonesia. They come back with missions report night, and it's like pulling teeth to get people to come out and watch the slideshow. It's astounding to consider even how many people are totally unconcerned for other departments in the church, right? You talk to the adult department at a church and they, don't, they might not care what's going on in youth group. They don't, they don't care. Maybe if they have a kid in there, they'll care. But that's, again, that's a self-interest. But if you don't have a kid in there, do you care? Do you care what happens in the nursery? Do you, do you care what happens in the elementary? Like, do you care? Is it you only care about the parts of the church that you're involved in, or do you care about Christ's church? Practically speaking, we can't expect a leader to care equally about every church everywhere. Let's rule out the obvious. But it does mean that the the leader shouldn't only be concerned about what he's personally involved in. Right? 
if the youth group is suffering at your church, you, you tell him, and he doesn't have a kid in the youth group or anything, he doesn't, he doesn't know anyone in the youth group, you tell him the youth group, you know, it's not doing well. If he sits there rolling his eyes and he's blaming the youth pastor or blaming the teenagers, uh, even if he's right, his, his lack of concern is telling. Jesus feels care and compassion for his people. That's what a leader should feel as well. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he must care for Jesus' church with Jesus' interests in mind, not his own. Number seven. A Christ-centered leader serves to unify the church to Jesus. A Christ-centered leader serves to unify the church to Jesus. Chapter, three, uh, chapter sorry, 2, verse 2. Uh, he says, um, you know, I, I care about all the churches, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. See, if you, if you look at this verse and the, uh, what he's saying here, if you do ministry right, the church will be encouraged and the church will be knit together in love. That'll happen, right? The sermons will, will certainly identify sin and error, but you also show a better way. It doesn't just make people guilty, you know, feel guilty. It, it invites them to something better and says, this is a better solution. This is, this is going to take you into a, a better place and it's going to lead you toward Christ. That, that's where he invites you. And it, re- it will remind you that God loves you and wants you there. You'll end up with a richer, full assurance of understanding. I, I love the way he says it, a, a richer, full assurance of understanding. The Bible is not speculating. It's not ambiguous and it's not unclear. If you, end up, if you end up thinking that you can't have assurance about anything, how can I have assurance of salvation? How can I be assured of it? You sit there thinking that the, like, like Jesus was, was failing at telling you. You're missing it. The, you know, when, you, when you teach the church rightly, the church is, is uh, encouraged and knit together and there's, there's the riches of full assurance of understanding. Teach the word, hearts will be, uh, hearts will be knit together. I mean, they're, they're loving each other. That's what they bond over. You know, like when you're a sports fan, like you, you like the Lakers or the Dodgers, and you meet someone else who likes the Laker, Lakers or the Dodgers, when you, when you love the same thing, you just kind of bond, right? There's like that thing. And that's, that's what's going to happen. When you, when you really just start unveiling the glory of Christ, it knits the church together because no matter how different we all are, you know, no matter how different, we're brought together by the common love for Jesus. How do you know if a church leader is serving to unify the church to Jesus? Well, basically, he's not trying to unify the church to himself. He's not concerned about being a superstar, or being well-loved, or you know, having everyone treat him with honor, that kind of stuff. For that matter, he's not trying to unify them under anyone else either. He's not trying to unify them under John Calvin, not under John Wesley, not under Martin Luther, not under Charles Spurgeon, certainly not under a pope. His concern is whether or not they are unified because they love Jesus. They love worshiping him. They identify with him. They love his word. The Apostle Paul isn't afraid to rebuke and correct churches, you know, like, like the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, 4.21, he'll rebuke them. He's like, you want me to come with the whip? Or you want me to come with the spirit of gentility? He, he'll rebuke them. He knows he's not everyone's favorite leader. He knows. And he's not afraid to be, uh, to be like someone's least favorite He's not afraid of that. He's not trying to unify the church under himself. The Corinthian church, they were following like four different factions. You know, some liked Paul, some liked Peter, some liked uh, Apollos. Some were like, no, we don't like any of you. We just like Jesus only. You know, like, they had like all these different factions. If Paul wasn't like, hey, come on, everyone follow me. Be on my group. Be in my denomination. He, he wasn't doing that. 
All you want to do is point them to Jesus. And, and if, if we do that, then you, you breed unity. Look, I, 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 look, I know I'm slightly socially awkward, okay? I'm, I'm fully aware of this fact. Uh, I, I know I, I uh, sustain eye contact for way too long. And uh, I know that I got nothing in common with basically all of you, right? I, I know this, except Jesus. I got nothing in common with basically all of you, except Jesus. We got that in common. And that's enough, right? That's what's going to knit us together. So then you can deal with my social awkwardness. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he'll encourage his church with the knowledge of Jesus, and that's what will bring them together. Number eight, a Christ-centered leader trusts the word of Christ alone. Trusts the word of Christ alone, verse three. Just, you know, kind of uh, finishing off that sentence, he's saying that, you know, the, there's the mystery which is Christ, talking about Christ, verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have to take that sentence seriously. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, obviously, the context uh, isn't lending itself to every field of knowledge. There's a specific type of knowledge he's talking about, right? You're not going to learn multivariable calculus by reading the Gospel of Luke. It's not that every field of knowledge is what he's talking about. When he, when he says all knowledge, even that still has a context. So what kind of knowledge are we talking about? Well, when he talks about knowledge, whenever he mentions knowledge throughout this passage, he keeps tying it to the word wisdom. He keeps tying it to the, uh, to the idea of full assurance of understanding. And he keeps tying it to the idea of presenting everyone mature in Christ. Right? That's the knowledge that he keeps talking about. That's the knowledge of faith. That's the knowledge of spiritual growth. That's the knowledge of sanctification. That's the knowledge of becoming more and more like Jesus, right? That, that's, that means that in what Jesus taught, like only in Jesus, is hidden everything you need to know in order to be more like him. Everything you need to know in any matter relating to faith and practice, right? What Jesus taught, he entrusted to his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, 13 if you include the apostle Paul, which you should. So 13 apostles. And then they taught, and everyone that they taught knew that that was the word of Christ. They knew that that was the word of God. They knew it. That's why Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in your... They knew it. This is, Paul is writing this and stuff. They knew that the apostles' doctrine was the word of Christ. That's the testament of the early church. You see it all over the place. And that's what they trusted. They trusted the word of Christ alone. Because in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge pertaining to faith and practice. Right? Anything that has to do between your relationship to God, anything that has to do between that dynamic is hidden in Christ. It's all there, right? And all you got to do is just look, and it's revealed to the saints is the way he's talking about it, right? It's given to you. It, it was a mystery. It's an unknown thing, a mysterion. It, it was an unknown thing, but now it's revealed. Now it's known. Now it's fully accessible and, and believable. You don't need some mystic knowledge. You don't need some special revelation. It's perspicuous. You can understand it simply by looking at it. All the treasures of knowledge uh, are, are in Christ, which, you know, what that, what that means for us, you never have to look outside of what Christ taught. You never have to look outside the word of God to find out about spiritual truth. Never. There is no spiritual truth to be found 
outside the Bible that is not already talked about in the Bible. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. And he entrusted it to the apostles, and the apostles taught it. That's the word of Christ. Sometimes I guest speak and I have to do a question and answer session. People will sometimes ask me questions. They're already angry before I even answer. They already kind of know what I'm going to say, and so they're angry. And, you know, you get that tone. Do you really believe that? You know, and then they ask a question. I think it's okay for people to ask like that. But I always preface my answer with this. I say, look, uh, I, I will answer your question. I just want to ask you something first in return, which is if you and Jesus disagree, who would be right? If you and the Bible disagree, whose side would you take? You, you have to reckon in your heart and deal with the fact that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for everything about faith, about you and your relationship to God. It's all in there. Would you say that all those answers can be found in you? I wouldn't believe you. I don't, I don't think that's true. Can you find all those answers in Jesus? The apostles said yes. They all said yes. No matter how strong your personal opinion, no matter how sincere your deep desire about things like moral principles or political policies or human nature or divine reality, no matter how badly you're you know, passionate about something and how much you want it to be true, if you and Jesus disagree, who is right? Here's a hint, not you. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, his wisdom and his knowledge will come from the word of Christ nowhere else. Number nine, a Christ-centered leader trusts only Jesus' teaching, no one else. Now, if you notice, that's almost the same thing as the first one, right? Uh, it's number eight. I'm saying a Christ-centered leader trusts only Jesus' teaching. And this time, I'm really going to underline the word only, okay? Verse four, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or clever scheming arguments. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The problem and the occasion for which Paul writes the, the letter to the Colossians is that uh, there were teachers sprouting up and leaders trying to come into the church and uh, influencing people to try to believe in things outside of Scripture. That was the problem. But remember, all matters of faith are found in what Jesus taught through the apostles by way of Scripture. If you think you can find additional truth outside of what Jesus taught by way of his apostles in what they wrote, then you do not believe that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. You believe that more can be found elsewhere. Your faith is not centered on Jesus. It's centered on something else. And you are deluded, he says. No one may delude you with, with plausible arguments. If you start going into things outside of Jesus, things that Jesus never taught, and you start saying, these things are true about, uh, about God and me. These things are true about, about spiritual reality. When you do that, you are deluded is the word it says. It's a delusion. These are, these are plausible, clever, scheming arguments that convinced you of a spiritual truth that Jesus didn't tell you. You're either calling him a liar or a fool, or he's ignorant. You're saying that he kept a secret from you. And didn't give you everything. He said, you know, he, he said he revealed it all. And you're saying, no, he didn't. If you trust in any voice that isn't Jesus to inform your faith, your faith, your wisdom, your knowledge, your salvation is a delusion. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, he'll identify every delusional false teaching, not by a hunch, 
but by showing that it doesn't come from Christ. Number 10, last one. Take a breath. Number 10. A Christ-centered leader motivates you with Jesus, not his own authority. He motivates you with Jesus, not his own authority. Verse 5. Paul says, though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's kind of saying a lot of the same uh, thematic stuff that he's been saying, you know, like, I care about you guys. I'm not there. I want to be there. You know, my spirit's with you, but I'm so glad that you guys are doing well. I'm so glad to see that you are, uh, are trusting in Jesus, right? And so this, this 10th principle, I'm, I'm more just inferring uh, interpretively here, um, Paul's nice little ending here establishes his credibility for the Colossians to heed his instruction. If, if you just notice, he doesn't go, okay, now I am an apostle and everyone needs to listen to what I have to say now. He doesn't use his authority to try to push the church to do what he says. He doesn't go, I'm the pastor. He doesn't go, I'm the elder. He doesn't do that. He, he's, oh, he's introduced, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ and a servant of, of the gospel and all this. He's fine. But he's not like bullying them with that. He's not beating them over the head with his role and his rank. He doesn't have to pull rank. He just says, look, I care about Jesus, and I see you care about Jesus, and that's where I want to point you. He appeals to them on the authority of Jesus, not, not the authority of himself. He could have very well said, I'm an apostle. Jesus gave me this, uh, this position, and so if you don't do what I say, you're in a, in a heap of trouble. There's, there's a bunch of wrath coming your way. He could have said that. He really could have, and yet he didn't. He never felt like his, his authority was deserved anyway. He, he understood he was just given it out of God's grace, and he had to steward it well. So he didn't go around acting like everyone has to listen to what he says. He, he doesn't even deserve that authority. He believed everyone had to listen to what Jesus had to say. So he just says, look, this is what Jesus says, and this is what I'm going to point you to. Leaders that uh, try to lord their authority over people, Jesus warns about in Matthew 20, verse 25 lording over people and stuff. He says that's the way the world leads. That's the way unbelievers lead. Not so with you. If you're in the church, your leadership comes from a serving heart. It's one that just points people to the actual Lord, which is Jesus. If a leader is to be Christ-centered, his authority will be exercised by caring for others and showing them how Jesus is the better way. So here, the, here you go. Those are 10, uh, 10 principal observations of how Paul demonstrates Christ-centered leadership, the basis on which he expects the Colossian church to, to trust his instruction, the basis by which we also should trust him. Those principles are part of what you should expect of any church leader, including the ones here at this church. And I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, you know, just to be fully transparent, uh, the leaders of this church, we don't have this down perfectly. We really don't. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that, uh, that we stand here and all 10 of these things are just like, ah, we tick that off this list and yeah, that's us. Um, far from it. We, we mess up, we make mistakes uh, and you should know that. You should know we need you. Right? We are on the same journey you are. We are, uh, we're growing in all the same things you are. We're challenged by Jesus' words at the end of uh, Matthew 5 where Jesus actually has the, the gall to say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Be perfect. And that's scary. 
And then when you're a leader, you know, the leader has to be above reproach, meaning he has to be basically perfect. And that's scary. And so we have to sit back and then we have to think about, well, what does that mean? Like if, if I commit a sin, does that disqualify me from leadership and stuff? We have to wrestle with that. And you have to wrestle with that when you're evaluating church leaders. Do you just judge them because you saw them do something one day? that you didn't like, you didn't think was good. So we take comfort in Paul's words in Philippians 3.12. Paul himself says of himself, talking about being perfect, he's like, not that I've already obtained all this. I haven't obtained perfection, but I press on toward the goal. I press on to be perfect. I keep moving forward. Look, perfection's the standard. Direction's the key. Follow the guy that's going in that direction. Hopefully the leaders that we have at this church and the leaders that we end up selecting in the future will be gifted people who are far enough along the journey that they could help guide you on your way. And if and when we stray, hopefully someone else will lovingly remind us that Jesus has and is a better solution than the way we're behaving. The right kind of church leader will respond to that loving reminder by returning to his center You know why we say Christ-centered leadership? Because their leadership is going to point you in all sorts of directions, all sorts of directions. It'll point you there, point you there, point you there, point you there. And like, where am I going? Where am I going? Where are you leading me? And when you just, when you see everywhere that they're shooting, everywhere that they're aiming, where they're putting you and telling you to go, right in the middle of it is Jesus. Yeah, sometimes sometimes we're going to mess up, but get, get the leaders that are going to keep centering back to Jesus. When they stray, they just recalibrate. They, they look again, they aim again, they press on. They fix their eyes on the author and perfecter of their faith. If you listen to such a leader, you'll be pointed by all his instruction and find that at the center of all his leadership is Christ. That'll make a church that God wants it to be. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, what can we say? Uh, The leaders of this church stand evaluated by what's written in the word, assessed in the quality of their leadership. We hope that passages like this will identify who's aiming in the right direction, who's leading the right way. We hope, Lord, that this wouldn't be an instruction just for leaders either. And for anyone who's just sitting there thinking that this is the tool to now evaluate, critique, judge leaders. Lord, we pray that they wouldn't miss the the, the call that this is how everyone is supposed to be Christ-centered. The way that the leader is to live is to be an example for the rest of the flock to then follow. God, we pray that this would be true of our church, that it wouldn't just be Christ-centered leadership, it would be Christ-centered membership, it would be Christ-centered church. We place no confidence in our own flesh. We admit our sinfulness and our failings. And we trust in the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross that has paid the penalty for our sin and installed in us a righteousness that's not our own, but comes from heaven and is of him. We ask God that our leadership and our membership would center on Christ and Christ alone, that our church would be a Christ-centered church. May we trust in you, God our Savior.
and be your people. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.